I got to feel it. And the only cure is Bobby Nealon. <laughs> is it, what is that from? Uh, the cowbell thing. I need more cowbell. The Will Ferrell uh, skit. Right? Oh, man. Yeah. Or he's like, I, I got a fever. A fever. The only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you. Okay. Well, I got to feel it. The only prescription is more Bobby Nealon. And we got yeah, him does, in the that house. That does rhyme a little bit better, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got to ask, so this is what, two podcasts in a row where we got multiple Boston Red Sox hats on? And it's legitimate too. It's not like he just has a hat in his house. Yeah. Like, you know, he and Mark and Bobby, especially you're a diehard, right? Oh yeah. No, I mean, been on him since, you know, well, I mean, I, I don't have Bucky Dent, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I've got Aaron Boone. So. Yeah. Yep. 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 Died in the wool. So we'll, we'll get into all that good stuff. Bobby Nealon and I met on Twitter in the EFT land. He started making some intelligent commentary on, I think analytics solutions and just data related stuff. And and I was like, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. Jose Rodriguez is like, oh no, Bobby really knows his stuff. So we got on the phone with the intention to chat. I wanted to introduce him to Funk Futures, talk about all the amazing, fun, innovative, cool clients we have, but we just sort of got into to everything. And he's got roots um, in the Northeast in New Hampshire. He's a Sox fan. He married a girl from Pennsylvania, just like I did. And then, of course, tying it into the whole analytics thing. Sounds like you might even know some people who played baseball with him, Tim. So this, this Bobby Nealon's got a web around him. Though. I guess well, so. Yeah, we kind of had to have him on the show after all of that, didn't we? Yeah. So, you know, we're casual here, Bobby. I just want to get a sense, like, who are you? Right? Where'd you come from? Where'd you go to school? And then how did that take you eventually into oil and gas? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, Bobby Neal and I uh, grew up mainly in the Houston area. I grew up down in a small town called uh, Needville, south of uh, south of Sugarland. Um, my mom's from my mom grew up in Needville, and then, uh, but I, you know, was born down here actually originally in Wharton, and then lived up in uh, in New Hampshire until I was about uh, six or seven or so, and then moved back down, and then you know, went all the way through. Uh, through, yep, and live for your die. Um, and remind me, I, I do have a actually do have a Plymouth, New Hampshire story. Um, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Isn't that where the mall is, Jeremy? I mean, since you brought it up, Tim, the nearest mall uh, until I was 11 was in Manchester, which was about an hour and wow. 10 minutes from my house. <laughs> so it was a big deal when they got one in Concord, and then it was like 45 minutes. But nice. no, Plymouth did not have a mall. <laughs> But yeah, so remind me, you know, I think we're going to get into some of that, uh, that stuff later, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, lived, there, lived up there until I was six or seven. Then we moved back down and then kind of grew up in Houston, um, in this area and, uh, went through Needville high school and got into the United States Merchant Marine Academy, um, which is up on, uh, Long Island in New York and, uh, was there for about a year and a half and then realized that, Hey, I didn't want to be on a ship, uh, the rest of my life or for the next eight years and uh b i was starting to kind of fill out and throw the baseball a little harder and stuff like that so i kind of wanted to you know pursue that passion um so came back down did a year junior college baseball at wharton county junior college uh and then actually made my way back up to new york had some connections up there and uh got in at hofstra university right uh we played in the caa and uh <clears throat> yeah did uh two more years there and graduated and you know that's where i met my wife you know i played baseball and she played softball um, and then, you know, it was pretty, so I guess kind of step back, 
both my parents are teachers. Uh, my mom taught elementary school, just retired last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and my dad's going to retire this year. Uh, so, you know, kind of that teaching life was kind of what I knew. Um, and, and it's a great, it's a great life, uh, you know, especially in you know, time with kids and everything in the summer. But, um, so, you know, I was like, you know, when I, I got my math degree and figured, you know, I'm going to teach, I'm going to coach. And, uh, and I, and I came out and did that. I did one year at a small school, uh, near Galveston called Hitchcock high school and coached some basketball and taught math there. And then got in at foster high school, um, in, in Richmond, uh, kind of out near Tim and, uh, mm -hmm. coached basketball, baseball, did a little bit of football and, uh, taught everything from algebra up to pre-cal. And, uh, yeah, that you know, kind of got me up to the, the oil and gas point. So we got to about tw 2014 or so. And, uh, well, I guess, you know, a couple of years before that I was coaching some summer baseball as well. And, uh, one of the dads on the team, his name is John Hentges, just retired from Conoco. Um, we got to talk in, had a, had a couple of beers and he's like, oh man, you got a math background and you did a little engineering coursework. I mean, you'd be great at, at Conoco as a reservoir tech. And I was like, man, I don't know anything about oil and gas. <laughs> um, he said, like, oh, don't worry, but you don't, you don't need to. Isn't I mean, that illegal? Like, if you grow up in Houston, you have to know something about Like they let you graduate high school without knowing what a, what an oil rig is. Yeah. Hey, I knew what, I, I knew what a cotton field was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's an Eadville blue Jay. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. There's too much. Hold on. Before we get into your oil and gas stuff, there's, there's a lot here already. Yeah. Right. And, and I think this is, I even forgot about that commonality too. Both of my parents are teachers, uh, who have retired as well. So I had a similar upbringing in terms of that lifestyle, right? What they had, sort of all the trips planned around the the school schedule. Education was a big time priority. Um, and it just sort of instilled a different mindset. And like you, like I didn't really know anything about business growing yeah. up. And then I went to a liberal arts college and waited tables. So by the time I actually got my first like real corporate job, I was almost 24. And I didn't know anything about business yeah. other than what I'd seen on like office space. You know what I mean? exactly. so, so it was like a real like, whoa, hits you, hits you right in the face. But I think that's a, that's, that's an interesting parallel. And then the, the, the baseball passion. So even when you were done playing, you still wanted to be kind of a part of it, right? Like you've got a, this yeah. real passion for, for sports. Do you still do any of that coaching now that you're working full time and on gas? Um, so not nothing with baseball, you know, currently I'm actually been coaching my daughter's, uh, six U softball this past fall and now this spring. And that's been a lot of fun and it's been really cool to kind of get back into it. Um, totally different than coaching high schoolers. Like, you know, we show up first day for softball and it's like, this is first base. This is second base. Right. <laughs> um, you know, your glove goes on your left hand if you're right-handed, you know, all those kind of basic things, but no, it's been a lot of fun and kind of, kind of, kind of re-energize me in, it, in that, in that space. Um, when I got into the oil and gas, I didn't you know, totally leave baseball behind for a while. I, I did some like private coaching and stuff like that. Um, kind of kept, kept in it there, but then with the kids and running around, you know, it's just, you know, focusing a lot more on, you know, on being a dad to my kids and being a coach to my kids. So. Yeah. Fantastic. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, the, uh, what, I mean, well, first of all, what position did you play? Were you a pitcher? You said you filled out and you we were throwing harder. So maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I was a, I was a pitcher in college. It, I broke my wrist playing football at the Merchant Marine Academy and that kind of ended my hitting career. You know, I just kind of got too far out of it by the time I came back and hadn't seen live pitching for two or three years. And it was like, that's just tough to come back to, especially when you start moving yeah. up levels. Yep. Yeah. For me, it was a curveball stopped me from hitting. Yeah. Yep. Any, anybody threw a curveball, I was yeah. jelly legged and falling all <laughs> over the place. So. Yeah. I remember even just like making contact with a curveball once when I'd been struggling so much and I was just really proud of myself that I yeah. like timed it <laughs> enough to hit a foul ball or something. Um, well, I have a, a weird one for you, but in coaching, so you obviously you coached, uh, you know, 
young teenage boys and uh, in high school, and then you're going to coach your daughter in six U, which is you know different, clearly a very different age group. But did you notice a discernible difference between coaching girls versus coaching boys? I know that big age group to tell apart, but uh, yeah, I mean uh, it's definitely different with girls. Um, but at the same time, I I think at this point I don't know if I can necessarily tell if it's just girls or if it's six year olds. You know, um, it's kind of tough to discern right now. But I mean, I think they're definitely. I just try to keep it a lot more light. I you know I just I you know right now being six year, I just tell them I I just want this to be a good experience. Your first experience with softball, I want it to be good. I don't want yeah. I want you to want to play again next year because you know you're on my team. Yeah, you know we'll, we'll learn some softball along the way, but um, you know let's keep let's you know let's not make it too overly competitive right now. There's plenty of time for that. Yeah. I, I coached a bunch of co-ed soccer teams, you know, why stuff, but at that age, I found it kind of interesting that at six years old, there was an interesting break where some of the kids just got it immediately and were super competitive and just, and then there was a lot of other people that just weren't ready to, to grasp sports. I was kind of where I was headed with it. Do you notice much difference with did you see that on, on that, on that side? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you get some girls, I mean, my daughter, it's almost like she didn't really have a choice. I mean, my wife took her up to Mizzou last summer to go to the super regional because my wife's former uh, coach is the head coach at Mizzou softball. So, they, wow. you know, <clears throat> we've kind of got her indoctrinated and all that, but then you get other girls that show up and like I said, they, I mean, they don't know anything about the game. The parents, I mean, I had one of the parents last night, I asked him if you do the scorebook and he's like, I said something about a single and he's like, what's a single? And I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, and, and they're awesome. I mean, great parents, and everything, but it's just like, you know, so some of these kids just haven't been exposed to it. Um, and you probably had her doing soft toss in the, uh, in the house at two years old, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my, and my son's a maniac now too. Cause now he's, he's got a sister. He just turned two like this week. Wow. And last night, you know, we did a little practice with my daughter. He's like, I want a bat. I want a ball. And you know, he's like grabbing it and holding it right already. And it's, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just they come from it. But, I mean, it's pretty cool. We're about halfway through the season. And actually, a girl last night got the game-winning hit. And, I mean, she's been struggling all year. You know, she's probably one of the youngest on the team. But, I mean, she made contact because they took the tee away yesterday. So, they can't use a tee anymore. Like, after they get five pitches, they're out. And she made contact. And, that you know, she ran to first. And we scored. And that, that was a winning run. So, it's, it's pretty cool to see them, you know, that maturation process. I mean, they grow a lot over, you know, two months or so. Yeah. A lot of parallels there to – life in general and especially in sales, right? Like I yeah. just need to get this done. I've been struggling. And then you get the, the game winning hit, the biggest deal of the quarter and you're the oh, for sure. conquering hero. You know, Tim, um, random also with Sarush coming on the episode before this back to back guys who went to college in New York. Completely well, I was, random. I, I mean, honestly, when I was reading, reading your bio, I didn't know where Hofstra was. Oh, so really? I to, yeah. I knew, I, I knew it was Northeast. So I had to go look it up and I think I see it's in New York and it's on, like in the center of long Island, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was sitting there thinking about one of the questions I was going to ask, because I have no appreciation other than New York City. You know, it's New York, Long Island, and I know that the concept is very different. But what is the is there what is the difference between living in Long Island versus kind of up in New York City? Is it a Manhattan? Man? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Long Island is definitely the burbs, but not like you think of the burbs out here that, you know, a little, a lot more established community has been around a good bit longer, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, Long Island's interesting too, just cause you've got a little bit of that. There's a North shore versus South shore thing. You've got, you know, Suffolk versus Nassau County is kind of East. Like, I mean, cause if, if you go way out East, I mean, you've got like Montauk and the Hamptons and like, that's like pretty swanky and it's, I mean, it's beautiful out there. 
Um, and then, you know, Hofstra was kind of more on that West side where you're getting closer to Queens. So, you, you know, it starts to blend together a little bit. Um, but, uh, I mean, culturally, I mean, I, I think they retain a lot of the New York kind of swagger and stuff like that, but it's just not the hustle and bustle in yeah. as much, um, you know, a little, just a little more like, suburban. There's real beaches on Long Island too. Oh yeah. People go down there and, and spend summers and, you know, on the beach and all that versus, oh, like, yeah, that was beautiful. there's water in, in Manhattan, but I don't think you're like hanging out on the, on the beach. I don't even know <laughs> nah. if they're already in Manhattan, right? <laughs> nah, I mean, I went to Jones beach quite a bit. I mean, the North shore is a little more craggy, uh, on the Long Island sound and everything, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot worse places you could be than Long Island in the summer. So, yeah, yeah, no, no question. Well, you know, pardon all the baseball talk. It is opening day. I'm going to be heading to Coors Field after this podcast. So extremely excited about that with your friend Dan Chickiar, Tim. Oh, old, there you uh, go. Tradition opening day, Capitol Grill, then over to the ball game. But uh, Bobby, you 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 just met Tim, right? Like you hadn't had any interactions with no, him. Yeah, before we hadn't this. chatted or anything. So one of the things we like to hit people with is, is Tim, talk a little bit about your background at Spotfire and let's, let's transition to sort of the data and analytics conversation to go from your math background, Bobby, into your oil and gas career and how you've applied it. And Tim, talk about uh, sort of where you came from in this whole genesis. Well, yeah. So, I mean, there's no reason you know this, but I, I started out in, you know, at Schlumberger, well, it was a predecessor to that and moved over to Spotfire and I was actually their first oil and gas person. Okay. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know if they want to pursue oil and gas, all kinds of, they were basically in pharmaceuticals for the most part. Yeah. And anyway, so we, we struggled forever to get the industry to kind of recognize analytics at all and, and come up with a budget to kind of put anything in place. So I'm kind of proud of what we wound up doing. By the time I left, yeah. we had, we had moved across the chasm and we're starting to kind of move up the i'm sorry we're using a sales term but i don't know if you know crossing no yeah i mean i haven't read the book but i'm really kind of aware like i I read the cliff's notes essentially yeah so So anyway um so i like to tell people when i go in and they're they're using spotfire complaining about something i always tell them well that's that's partly my fault yeah (laughs) no i mean no i mean if if that was you you did a hell of a job with the market i'm not going to take that much credit but there are a lot of people involved it was a great yeah, sure. product, great, great group. And, uh, you know, we had some great salespeople. I was on the technical side, but um, I left right as it was kind of making the turn and where it became, you know, it was a couple of years later and it became kind of, you just walked into any one of the gas companies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost or, ubiquitous at this point. Yeah, and, or one of the competitors was there. In t- 2014, yeah. I feel like it had really kind of reached fairly mass adoption. So I'm I'm guessing when you walked into your first was it a data and analytics kind of job at uh, oh, Conoco where you yes. started? Okay, so <clears throat> I came in and I was a reservoir engineering technician. Okay. But like, but to your point, like the first day I went to lunch and it was me, my boss Phil, and uh, the reservoir engineer Greg Lemons, who's a really talented dude, and uh, they were like, "You're going to be the Spotfire guy." <laughs> like, so, welcome yeah um i was like i don't know what that means but uh uh but no i mean like they kind of just they had me pegged that you know and they knew i didn't know what i mean i mean one of the stories i tell like i literally walked in the door and i didn't know what a vlookup was in excel like the first week they kind of gave me a little pet project and i was trying to hack away at it and someone was like oh yeah just do a vlookup and i was like wait what's that um <laughs> but but they basically had me pegged to be a you know, the Spotfire Reservoir Tech, you know, for the Eagleford development team or for the end up being for the Eagleford base reservoir team. But um, 
really, I mean, like I've had cut my teeth, like Greg basically would. So Greg had built a, a, some really cool stuff uh, with a uh, couple of the contractors they had and then uh, they kind of handed it off to me, but then it was like, all right, how can we add more functionality? So he's like, Hey, this group did this. Can you reverse engineer it and bake it in? So, I mean, I did a lot of learning just by working backwards from what other people had done at that point. And then, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love Spotfire. Um, to the point where I actually, I ruffled some feathers uh, with Tibco a few months ago. I, I put out a, a LinkedIn and Twitter post, but LinkedIn was more powerful with them. And I ended up getting like their VP of wow. analytics <laughs> reach out to me. But it was more because I, I think marketing wise, they could do better. I mean, like I, I sit and I see Power BI and I see Tableau and it's like, I mean, yeah. just people just know those brands and I haven't messed with Tableau too much I mean, and I've heard really good things, but I mean, I've messed with Power BI and I'm, I'm coming around on it. Um, I mean, I'm seeing good use cases, but I mean, Spotfire can do anything that Power BI can do and more. Sure. And it's just, but I don't, you, again, you get outside of oil and gas or pharmaceuticals for the most part. And I don't know many people who know about Spotfire other than just in passing knowledge. Interesting. And, uh, and, I, and to me, it's a problem. I mean, um, it's a problem with the marketing or just how it was pitched or, you know, or they're just comfortable. I don't know. I mean, but to that end, the reason it upset me is because like, it's a great product um, and there's a ton you can do with it. So um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I branched into other, you know, tools. I mean, I, when I came in, it was like Spotfire and then I, I really, honestly, I resisted coding for a long time, but mm -hmm. you know, I speak of Spotfire was kind of my gateway drug, if you will. You know, and then through that, I was like, oh, you know, I guess if I can learn R, now I can extend it with the Terra engine and, you know, oh, well, if I want to pull data in and maybe I need to learn a little bit of SQL and then, you know, it just keeps building on itself. And, but, uh, no, I mean, still use it to this day, you know, at, at Grayson Mill. And, um, I mean, no, it's a great product. So let me ask you, so not many people make the run from coach teacher <laughs> into oil and gas tech. Sure. That is a, not a traditional path in. There's a lot. Not of, usually. We've seen a lot of non-traditional paths, but that may be, you know, one of the different, I mean, we had a coach at uh, George Ranch High School, also in the same district as Foster. Yep. And swimming coach. And he went from swim coach teacher to sales. Okay. You know, on gas, but he was selling hardware. Yeah, like, and that was, a, you know, a little bit different. You just train you up on whatever this valve is and go out and, and sell it. But sure. to move from oil and gas to from teaching to reservoir tech, I mean, that's not a, that's, that's a big, that's a big transition. I'm just kind of curious what, what P10s that was like and P90s and all these <laughs> different things. Like, what am I, what's good? What's bad? Is this sure. good? Is that line good? Is that line bad? Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously a, a huge jump, like I said, you know, I didn't even know what a VLOOKUP was in Excel. Um, so at the time, you know, part of the reason that, uh, the guy, John had recommended I joined Conoco was they were starting to see a lot of people with math degrees do very well as technicians, like reservoir techs, predict production techs. Um, and they figured, you know, we can teach them the rest. And yeah, I think it was a perfect storm. And I, I think other companies did it, but Conoco definitely, I mean, there was a group of us that came in um with with math backgrounds and uh it didn't help hurt that um like the manager of eagle for development steve bonet at the time he he started off as a reservoir tech and he had you know knew the kind of the skill set you needed to get into it so when I, when I got in luckily they invested a good bit in me uh, i think one thing that definitely helped you know i have the math background so you know the logic and kind of all that stuff but i think having that year or so of the engineering coursework at the merchant marine academy um it was really kind of because I, I had taken a lot of engineering basics. So when I got in, I had taken thermodynamics. I had taken 
strength of materials and just some of these other things. So when they started talking about some of the stuff, it wasn't like this totally foreign thing to me. Like now when I came in, I, I realized how little I knew about, you know, the subsurface. I mean, I think, and, and that's why I think I, I still try to have a lot of empathy with people uh, outside of the industry that speak about it. Cause like when I came in, like I, I had never even connected the dots that na- oil and gas was natural gas. Like you never had people think gasoline, hmm. you know, just little things like right. that or, yeah. Or it's, or, oh wait, it's not this huge, just like pool of oil under the ground. Like, it's not, you know, a, cave. Perm- it's yeah, not a cave that you just find. Permeability and porosity <laughs> and all the, all these things. Um, so, I mean, but I mean, at the, I, I was very lucky to get in when I did because, you know, 2014 oil still $90, and yeah. uh, Conoco invested a lot in me early on. Like they had an internal like reservoir engineering for non, or petroleum engineering for non engineers course and they sent me to wow. i think it was like subsurface consultants had like a two-day thing so i kind of got the crash course in oil and gas and then they had these things called ipims in, internally where we could you know learn more about oil and gas um, but then a lot of it was just you know sitting in meetings and trying to learn all the acronyms and just kind of like just being a sponge um, and not being afraid to ask questions i mean i think you know growth mindset gets kind of a you know a little hokey sometimes but i mean i just I've kind of realized if it's difficult to learn, it's worth learning. And, you know, just, you may not understand it now, but, and I think to your point, what you said earlier, Jeremy, like about the sales, but it's true everywhere. It's like success is not this linear path, right? You no. know, there's those memes where everybody's like here and it's all a bunch of scribble scrabbles. And then you know, all of a sudden it kind of, you figure it out or something works and it, then you take that next step, but um, just being willing to, you know, struggle through things and, you know, and just being willing to, willing to learn. Yep. Yep. I, I was chatting with somebody just the other day, who's 45 years old. And he said to this point in his career, it's all kind of been steady up. And this is the first time in his 20 something year career where he's like, I'm going to make less money this year. I feel uncertain about things. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just not a straight line to success for, for most people. Right. Yeah. And and it's a hard reality whenever it hits you, but I could see it hitting him. I'm like, you'll be all right. You know, there, there's no, no rule book that says you have to increase your compensation by 6% and gain a better job title every two years, right? No, right. for sure. And I think the timing you had w- is interesting because, I, I mean, I know thinking about myself with at, at that time, 2014, you know, it was a lot of crazy, stupid things were going on. People yeah. were drilling everything and anything. Yeah. And, um, and then 2015 got a little weird looking. And then mm-hmm. 2016, it just went, oh, Crash. what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that had to be interesting. You're just, what, a year and a half into your career? And, or, well, I mean, really I would say not even really, because it was November of 2014 when what? Saudi, it was right around Thanksgiving, and yeah. they announced they were going to ramp up production and prices. Because, yeah, I mean, I remember specifically being in a meeting and we were talking about, you know, break evens and stuff like that. And someone was like, Oh yeah, I think our break even's like 42 bucks or whatever. And we were like $90 oil. I was like, Oh, I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and, then, and then it didn't take long to get into 2015. You're like, Oh boy, this is a uh, cutting it close. But, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously oil and gas is cyclical. I, I think especially, I would say, especially for Conoco, I mean, a lot of people probably wouldn't think so if they lost their jobs, but I think it was necessary. <laughs> you know, like I think, you know, especially Conoco when I came in, it was, they had what they had split in 2012 or 2013 or so with Phillips 66. And I think they were still operating like they were integrated mm. at this huge center and just throwing money around. And, you know, it's kind of like, how are we making money? And turns out maybe we weren't. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that they've done a great job since then of like, they they were kind of the first ones on, on that whole cost of supply um, <clears throat> type strategy. And they really seem to have executed on acquisitions and divestitures so far. So 
um, yeah, it was definitely a very interesting time to come in. Um, and I was very fortunate to have people in my corner, um, you know, to, to kind of make it through those. Cause that was definitely unnerving to <laughs> your first year out of teach, you know, comfortable teaching coaching and, you know, you're making a little more money, but you're like, how long is this going to last? I just bought a house, got a kid on the way. Um, but, uh, no, it's, you know, I was very fortunate to kind of get through those and, uh, no, it's, it's been great. So, so how long were you at Conoco and then you're at Grayson Mill now, right? Yeah. So yeah, there was a few stops in between there, but, um, oh, okay. yeah, I was at Conoco until 2017. Um, so about three years and then, I joined a company, Reservoir Data Systems, um, it was out in Katy, um, and they put pressure gauges and sensors on on wells. They have like high quality, high resolution uh, pressure sensors, and they use them for like uh, offset frac interference uh, measurement, like you know measuring pressure for offset frac yep. uh, defits. Um, yeah, I, you know when I was there, I helped helped. Uh, you know, there's a lot of companies doing it now, but you know with a frac streaming um, solution. Help develop that, you know, where you plug it into like the serial port and the, and the frac band and stream the data out so that people can see their fracks in real time. Um, you know, yep. So, and that was a really cool experience. Uh, you know, Rebecca and her husband Cecil, they run a really, really cool company out there. Um, you know, small but small but mighty kind of thing. Um, but it was a, I made, there was a growth that I made there that I don't think I would have been able to make at Conoco. Hmm. You know, going from big company, um, which, you know, I think everything has its pluses and minus like Conoco. I had this awesome data infrastructure that was already set up for us in the Eagleford. You know, we, we had a data warehouse. I could just plug in and got good data back. You know, didn't have to wor really worry about it. And I could play around. And that was a great way to learn in Spotfire and do all that. But um, RDS, I think, is where I took one of those, you know, kind of next steps. Um, you went from where there's somebody that's got a job to do something. And then you go to the small company where everybody it does. There is no job description. Yeah. Everybody has to do everything. Yeah. I mean, like, I was... I did everything data. I was managing a, a web development project. I was handling data QC and quality coming from the field. You know, yeah, I was, pro I was customer, customer, customer support rather, uh, you know, when operators were calling and, Hey, you know, where's this data? How do I find it? What's, what's wrong with it? Um, I'd, you know, I'd go on, on sales calls with this, you know, almost like a sales engineer, you know, helping the guys when they needed more technical background. Um, and then, I was also, you know, lucky enough the last year or two there to be on their executive leadership team and kind of actually get more on the business side and focus on like strategy, help them implement, you know, a goal setting system. I think uh, they use it digital walkers, OKRs, um, but just kind of really helping the company to kind of focus because, um, yeah, I learned a lot about business there because, I mean, it's when you're small, you have to make decisions, you know, you know, about what you can and can't do or what you're willing to do because you know, there's only so much time, <clears throat> excuse me, time and money. And, uh, right. you, you know, you want to help everyone with everything, but you've got to really kind of narrow your focus and to really execute, you've got to focus on that, you know, one or those one or two things, you know, if you're trying to boil the ocean, you're not going to get anywhere. So, um, but it was, a no, that was a really fun company and, you know, still have a lot of really good friends from there. It was, it was a really good group, group of people. Um, <clears throat> but from there, uh, a couple of former Conoco colleagues reached out, they were at university lands, which is part of the oh. university of Texas system. Sure. And oh, sorry. But. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to say the the university lands thing is is interesting. And I, I don't know, Tim. I, maybe you have some familiarity with with university lands a little bit. But but basically, um, I don't know. Can one of you guys give like sort of a high level on what they do because it's it's fascinating. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so university lands is part of the University of Texas system, and uh, I mean they've owned the land since I think sometime in the eighteen hundreds, but. Um, 
basically there's about 2.1 million acres of land out in the Permian mm -hmm. that they own. Wow. And about 1 million acres of that is oil and gas producing. Wow. And, uh, and, this, and they have the surface and the, uh, sub you know, the mineral rights to that. So, you know, the, the, and their, their mission basically is to provide, there's two funds. There's the permanent university fund and the, uh, auxiliary university fund, um, P Puff and the AUF. And the, so the Puff is one, I mean, that's the big one and that's managed by Utimco, um, which I can't remember what that acronym is, uh, exactly at the moment, but they're the ones who actually manage like the fund, manage the money. But we were, University Lands is kind of managing, you know, the, the oil and gas coming out of the ground and basically we're collecting, you know, royalty on every barrel of oil and gas, you know, produced on the land. And so all the revenue from that goes into the puff and then that gets managed. So last year, I mean, I think they just released their, um, like they had like a little PDF book of it, but I, I think it's all they made about $1.2, $1.3 billion for oh the University God. of Texas system. And I think the puff now is worth anywhere between 20 and $25 billion. And so <laughs> that gets, Wow. Uh, Utimco determines like that gets dispersed throughout University of Texas system. I mean, whether it's UT Austin, you know, UT Dallas, uh, MD Anderson, and actually a third of it goes to the A&M system as well. So two thirds goes to UT system and a third goes to A&M. Um, by the way, that is probably the beginning of the hatred between A&M and Texas. <laughs> really? When right before all that, there was, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I'm sure some historian can tell you where that started, but there was a big fight about the university lands that A&M should get half and Texas should get half. And then the, okay. the one third, two thirds split was that's, yeah. that's an interesting one. Back in my day, back in my day, <laughs> well, there, about 20 years ago, they used to talk about uh, one of the big jokes at Texas was A&M, you get one third of the education. <laughs> and that was that's a reference back to the i think the 20s when that division happened okay yeah it sounds right because that was yeah the 20s when they had the santa rita well and i think this last year they just restored that well as well kind of like a historical landmark whatever but um but i mean a super cool mission where like again the work you're doing kind of contributes to to the you to education you know which was kind of big for me coming out of education was kind of a, a cool deal to kind of parlay that and right like, like my former CEO kind of said, you know, money, some of that money goes to MD Anderson. So in a way, oil and gas cures cancer. Um, so uh, that's a nice message we should hit on. Yeah. Right. That seems like uh, something you'd see in, uh, in, in like the Midland airport or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. Um, but yeah, so you got that, the puff, which is that big one. And then you actually still have the auxiliary university fund. So one cool thing about that is like, it wasn't just oil and gas. Like we had, uh, grazing rights, but also, you know, solar farms, wind, yeah. uh, right away, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, managing the, the surface side of it too. And there's, you know, definitely an ESG component where, uh, you know, as leaseholders, we had a lot more power than probably your typical landowner. Um, you know, a, they, they weren't, if we asked for data, they had to give it to us. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if we needed stage by stage, you know, completion data, they are, you know, down to the perf level, they had to give it to us. Um, and a lot of them were not too comfortable with that, especially if like they had acquired, you know, a company that was on it, you know, and then they were like, wait, we have to give you that. <laughs> you're like, yeah. yeah, sorry, go, go read the, <laughs> go read the legal documents. But, um, but at the same time on the, uh, kind of the environmental side, you know, say, and it wasn't a, a huge lever, especially when gas got down where takeaway was like $0 or negative, but you know, they had to pay us for gas, whether they flared it or not. You know, so if, they, you know, if they flared it or not, like they were paying, you know, market rate. Um, 
pour that gas. Um, and I think there was things like you know, we had guys going around you know, making sure things were restored back to their original, you know, you know, so you come in, you build a pad and do all that stuff. Then once they leave, they've got to restore it back to the, to the way it was, you know, outside of the wellhead and everything. Um, so, you know, it was definitely a, a pretty cool deal in that regard. But um, I, I ended up being part of a group that has been around, I guess it's about six or seven years now, but uh, so for a while it was just, they were just collecting checks for the most part. And they yeah. had some like people that would go around, you know, check on things. But I think the board at UT was like, wait, we've got this amazing resource worth a lot of money and we're not doing anything to manage the oil and gas people on and make sure that they're developing it, you know, prudently. Uh, they're not just, you know, just again, destroying value and destroying capital. Cause I mean, UT lands has a lot, university lands has a lot longer viewpoint. Like they're looking at a 50, year kind of view of this, not like in the, but then you get some of these operators, you get a PE backed firm that comes in that just wants to grip it and rip it, you know, you which is months. great. Yeah. <laughs> and they're trying to flip it, but you know, so our group was kind of there to make sure, you know, see what companies were doing the best in certain areas, but then we, we could basically act as a, uh, like almost like a consulting group to the other operators. Like, cause we had data that they didn't have, mm. you know, everyone's got uh, public data, which especially in Texas is, you know, okay at best, especially when you get into production where it's allocated. But, um, you know, unless they have a you know, joint venture, but we, you know, again, we had all the production data and all the, so we, we could do analysis that they could. And we had industry experts, you know, from Conoco, Oxy, you know, some of these other companies, you know, geologists. So we, we go in and make a compelling uh, argument of like, this is why you should be spacing this way, or this is why, you know, you should change your frack design, you That's know, fun. you know, companies adjacent, you're realizing this much more. And, you know, we, there were even levers we could potentially pull where, you know, do we, you know, give you a couple of points on royalty to employ this strategy um, because we think it's that worth it, you know, but it's about, you know, creating value for the long term for the University of Texas system. So it was pretty cool. It's, you know, so me from the data side, you know, getting all that data from all these different sure. places and mashing it together, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. That's, that's great. I mean, the, the whole university land story is a good one. It's, you've played on the, the, software tech side you've played on the operator side then you played on the consulting side yeah and kind of had an opportunity it looks like then to go back to the operator side yeah um yeah so i mean i did some freelance you know over the last you know especially when i was at university lands i had a little time for that and worked with a mainly with a uh, pe backed operator in, in houston not the one i'm at currently um but you know a couple other you know folks forever but is i think that was a good way for me to keep my hand especially in the cloud stuff because you know at least the university lands, we were a little more, you know, traditional, uh, if you want to look at that as a positive or negative, but, you know, SQL Server, you know, on-prem kind of stuff, which which is fine. We had, we had amazing infrastructure, um, but it was a good way for me to kind of keep my my skills sharp, you know, and marketable. But, um, yeah, I did a real quick stint at a consulting company, and um, but I had been talking to the guys at Grayson Mill, um, you know, here and there. One of the guys, Patrick, I worked with him at Conoco, played basketball with him and everything, and hmm. we got to chatting, and it just seemed like it was the right move for me. Like, they, they had they had acquired the land from Equinor uh, or the, you know, the acreage from Equinor and uh, they had a, you know, a really good data engineer that came on, but then uh, she ended up leaving for a company in the aerospace and, you know, they needed to fill that, fill that hole. So um, it, it was a great chance to come in and almost like really like, you don't get many opportunities, especially in oil and gas for a kind of a greenfield like data mm -hmm. analytics build out. And it's been really cool to kind of have a lot of say, I mean, you know, my boss and the, C-suite and everyone has been really supportive of uh, some of my ideas, which which has been great. And we've been able to kind of, I think, Im implement some more modern technologies that other people, 
may not get to, or it's just harder, you know, once you've already got established infrastructure, we, you know, we were able to kind of come and start fresh. And uh, it's been, it's been really fun to kind of implement some uh, pretty cool technologies on that side, you know, to, and, you know, to get us ramped up pretty quick. And Grayson Mill, that's a hundred percent Bakken or a hundred percent Willison Basin. Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, got a little bit out in the P, uh, PRB, but yeah, I mean, they the, the main focus that they bought, you know, uh, we bought Equinor's Bakken acreage, and that's you know we we got that, um, you know, the oil and gas, but there's also a midstream component too that we're really trying to get our hands around, and we're you know figuring that out pretty quick. But I think there's a lot of a lot of potential there too. And if I remember right, they actually took operatorship or took it closed in June of 21, and then maybe so. I mean, by when you were hired in November. A 21, I mean, heck, it was still, you may not, you just, you're just getting the data, they're just getting the data organized from, from that point on, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a good bit over, but I mean, like even still, we're still, you know, wrestling with, you know, some of our accounting, you know, software. I mean, there was still getting some of those processes, you know, ironed out, but yeah, I mean, there was still a lot of like, yeah, there was still data kind of in flux coming over from there. It was right around that, you know, with the TSA period and all that stuff. But yeah, I think it really, even now it's like, you start looking at when did we really start operating? I think, Started seeing some action, action when they started operating around June, uh, July. I think they started realizing some uplift just from like optimizing the wells on the production side. But yeah, I mean, data side, yeah, I mean, it was still a lot of that coming over. So yeah, again, they were they were kind of working on a SQL Server based data warehouse, um, and then uh, yeah, I made the argument to get us moving over to more of a cloud data warehouse uh, yeah. kind of setup. But um, so so this is, I mean, and and Tim, you know, Rob um, Hembry and the Green Lake guys, he talks a lot about this too, how the ability to start from scratch and have minimal or zero tech debt is a major advantage for the new operator, right? The, the recently right. funded operator, the, the younger, more forward thinking tech centric operator that then can be like, okay, we'll go cloud heavy. Can you talk a little bit about either some of the cultural challenges that you've had with that um, in going that direction? And, and once you're able to get beyond some of those hurdles, um, what are some of those systems that you use? Because because I'm very familiar with sort of the traditional SQL on-prem and now seeing companies move more to to AWS or Azure or, or whatever sort of their preferences and uh, finding more means of, of data aggregation and, and dissemination to people that's even cleaner and faster and more real-time. So, so talk a little bit about y- your journey to the cloud and what are some of the systems that you utilize? What are your preferences? <clears throat> sure. So, yeah, I mean, so again, getting, getting back to RDS, where like, I thought I made a, some big gains there, that, that's when I really started kind of started using AWS and I kind of helped get them from on-prem into the cloud. Um, so, you know, I've started to kind of realize you don't need a server in a closet or, or you know, like, because I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, upfront capital investment you have to make. I mean, I don't want to get into why the cloud's great, uh, you know, uh, you know, or getting the whole value prop of the cloud necessarily, but, uh, but yeah, I guess getting back over to Grayson Mill. Um, I mean, it wasn't that they weren't using the cloud. Uh, you know, I think we're we're an Azure Azure shop, which you know a lot of oil and gas because you got the whole Microsoft background and everything. Um, but just because you're using Azure or AWS doesn't mean you're actually utilizing the cloud, right? Like just because you move this server from on-prem and just you know, put it on EC2 instance doesn't make it the cloud necessarily. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's that ability to scale rapidly or to, you know, so the, the big thing with the data warehousing side that I'm in right now is like these big massively, is like MPP, massively parallel processing uh, data warehouses yep. is this concept of separating compute from storage. Um, 
whereas like say SQL Server, it's all together. If you if you run a SQL Server node, you know you're you having to buy some combination, and they, they usually are kind of tied together in some way, shape, or form. But when you start using you know cloud data warehouses like Google BigQuery or Snowflake, or and I think even Redshift is moving into it now, like you're Sep, you know, your storage and your computer are totally kind of separate things. Because mm. I think what they're doing under the hood is they're leveraging like your S3 buckets or Azure blob storage under the hood for the storage. I mean, it's kind of obfuscated from you in that regard. Sure. And you have this compute layer on top of it. And you can have multiple kind of compute layers on top of it that are kind of separate. So, you know, I've got these people using Power BI. They can use this warehouse. And I've got these people using Spotfire and these people, use, you know, whatever else. Like they're actually not stepping on each other's toes from a compute standpoint. And you can scale this compute up fast and like and you're paying only for what you use. Yep. Um, you know, BigQuery is based on, you know, how much data is scanned each time. You know, you've got like Snowflake that it's, it's like kind of a time-based thing times how, you know, whatever uh, compute size you're using. But I mean, <clears throat> say, I mean, I just, you know, one example, like Snowflake is $23 per terabyte compressed per month. So I mean, like, 23 bucks a terabyte for compressed for and, storage and that, or even for compute. So that's for storage. And then you pay okay. compute separate. So, okay. I mean like that, right. yeah, again, those are separate there, but, um, sorry, excuse me. Um, but then like, if I want to throw more horsepower, like, so, you know, at least like snowflake talks about this, but they, they call it like it's linearly scaling. So, you know, you can start off with this extra small, which is super cheap, but like, let's say you've got like a big job or something you want to run, like yeah. even within like the SQL code, you can, send to it, say, I want to scale this up to a large cluster, run this query. And at the end of it, you can say, I want to scale it down. Then you can have that baked into your code. But I mean, like, so, you know, and one thing that we're doing now too is we're using more of a ELT pattern. You know, traditionally it was ETL, right? Where yep. you extract and transform and then you load it into your warehouse. Now the whole thing is, you know, they've got this concept of modern data stack is, you know, extract load and then transform it in the data warehouse because you have so much power behind it. And then, you know, analysts are getting to use SQL, which is kind of that lingua franca of, you know, you know, data, you know, transformations and uh, data consumption. So, you know, we're basically able to replicate our source systems into our data warehouse very affordably, you know, because it's stored like, you know, that storage is super cheap. Um, and then we can, you know, we can run our transformations on top of the code, you know, however long we want. But then when we run these jobs and then it, they're done, then you're not paying for it because that mm. cluster shuts down. And so you've got, I mean, you might be paying $2 per hour for this cluster, but you only ran it for a minute. So you're paying a prorated uh, wow. price. So, I mean, like you, you can actually do this, you know, very affordably, but super powerfully. I mean, like just this past week, there was an instance where, because our, our accounting system, pretty much everything we use this SQL server based on the application side, right. you know, that's just what a lot of vendors use. And I ran this query that the company had given us to kind of get this, this data out. And it, and this was like filtered, took like nine minutes on SQL server and it took 20 seconds on the right. cloud data warehouse. Like, right. and like, and this is just things that are going to compound. Whereas like, I mean, I, and I, this was for one of our revenue accounting ladies and she was like, this is going to be amazing because this process usually takes me like, 10 hours because like usually wow. it times out through the interface or this, or, you yep. know, they just didn't know how to get it out. And now we can just feed that right into Power BI or an Excel, you know, because you can feed ODBC right into like say an Excel sheet. And then, you know, she can use the interface that she's been comfortable with the whole time. Um, so I think we're just going to realize, you know, we're, we're just scratching the surface, but even, even still, I think this whole technology stack has allowed us basically because we didn't really pick it until the end of January. 
And basically by the end of the first quarter, we had all of our source systems, wow. you know, synced over, built out all these analytical views. And like, we're now it's about rolling it out to the business and, you know, getting in their hands through Spotfire, yep. Power BI, whatever, you know, so, you know, we can really start taking advantage of it. I love it. Was there a, I mean, November to January, let's see, you got a lot accomplished, but obviously you have to sell your management team on, hey, let's, we need to go embrace this. Sure. One of the problems <clears throat> I see, especially, and when you go out internationally, it kind of gets compounded, is this concept of, hey, it's it's not in our control. You know, very, this sure. very I think that wall has been knocked down for the most it's part. There. It's getting there. But yeah. there's still a little bit of that left. It, yeah, was sure. that a hurdle you had to cross over with? with your management team? Not too much really at Grayson Mill. I mean, like one great thing about Grayson Mill is, you know, our, um, our management, I mean, everyone's, I think, you know, late thirty, late thirties, you know, in their forties, you know, so we've got kind of that more, you know, these, in, these people who have been engineers and, you know, actually got to use Spotfire, you know, it's, it's not like you've got some executive who's heard of Spotfire, but never really used it. Sure. But we've got people that are data driven and it's, it's important to them that we are data driven and it's not just eyewash. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, my boss, Corey, has, has been great and extremely supportive, but I mean, there was some selling on it, but I think, you know, when you, I, just because your, you know, servers in your building doesn't make it any more secure. Uh, if you don't have the right firewalls and stuff in place. Sure. And one thing that, you know, all these cloud vendors, I mean, they give you all the tools you need and probably more than you might even have at your disposal, you know, to protect your network if you implement it correctly. Right. And there's that, sure. there's that shared burden, whereas like, you know, AWS or Azure, there's certain things under their responsibility that, you know, they need to make sure that underlying infrastructure, but like you have to apply best practices um, on top of it. So I think just pointing out that, you know, here are things we can do to keep our data safe, but here's, you know, the performance gains that we're going to get out of this. And it's going to allow us to, you know, I mean, there's development speed and then there's processing speed. And I think this has helped us in both regards. You know, sometimes you have to make that trade off, right? Like, you know, people talk about Python and is, you know, oh, it's a slow language. Well, is it? Does it happen in one second? That's fast enough for me. I mean, like, I don't, I don't care if it happens in one second or, uh, you know, half a second. But, right. um, it, but it's a lot easier to work with than C plus plus, right? So, like, but there are things like video games or certain processing things that need C plus plus or Rust or you know some of these more, you know, stuff that runs on the hardware. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, getting back to the data warehousing side, it's uh, yeah, it didn't take much, you know, too much arm twisting. Then, then it was about finding the right solutions you know for for the data extraction and load and for the data warehouse um and you know just getting comfortable with the money we were going to spend you know also the money we were going to save I, I like the like the database side i think was pretty easy because i it was at the very least a wash between the cloud data warehouse that we sure. chose and uh the sql server we were running on azure you know it was kind of a push and it's just way more performant for what we're trying to do um there was one part this software we're using to extract and load the data and we end up going with the best in class one and they know it and they make you pay for it. Yeah. But we haven't had no issues from their side. There was an issue with like the source system and they ended up working really well to get it. But I mean, like, I mean, some of the stuff you can literally, you, you have to set your source systems up, um, you know, to be able to kind of pull over the deltas. But, but basically at that point, like you just go to a list and say, I want tables X, Y, and Z, mm. hook a button and it syncs it over. And then it's nice. just syncing over the deltas. Like, and we can crank it down to 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. Like, so we're getting data pumping into our data warehouse like constantly, um, and then able to run transformations on it constantly, you know, and very quickly. I mean, like right now, I mean, maybe it's not as big as it's going to be in a year, but we, I mean, we can run our whole 
transformation over all of our source systems into what we're going to use for analytics right now. And it takes three to four minutes for those That's runs awesome. to run. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating to, to listen to this whole thing. Obviously you've got a strong technical background, but also understand kind of what the executives want in, in oil and gas back in, back in my day, <laughs> about 20 years ago, uh, my first job, in the corporate world was at a company called Left Hand Networks, sold storage area networks that ran over IP versus fiber channel. And the storage boxes that we sold were $20,000 for one terabyte. It would, you'd like have to buy a refrigerator. Yeah. You'd have to buy a yeah. really expensive fan to keep it cool. And if you wanted something called um, disaster recovery, it was extra. Right? I'm not kidding. No, so yeah. like the amount of people that like, uh, uh, God, I, uh, any tech company, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that used it, would spend, if they had seven sites and they needed disaster recovery and backup, I mean, you're talking a 20 terabyte deal was enormous, right? And what did you say? 20 terabytes cost you what? 20 bucks a month or something like that? Yeah. One, one terabyte is like 23 bucks and that's compressed. Yeah. Like they have a compression, right. which would compress like a terabyte down to like six, a sixth of its size. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, and the thing is, I swear that's where, I mean, especially on small folks like us, like, you know, cause we're not very big in the whole data warehousing, you know, we, we think we have big data, but we don't, but like, um, and some people do, I mean, you get in geo, you know, the subsurface, some of that data gets really big, but, but that's where they're making the money. Cause I, I, I'm about 98% sure they're using blob storage under the hood. And like, say if we're using a hundred gigabytes, we're paying 23 bucks. Like they're making money over the top of that every month. Yeah. Um, and they're doing that to, doing that to everyone. And I'm sure there's a lot of people not even close to utilizing that first terabyte that's, that's compressed. Um, but yeah, I mean like Azure blob storage, S3 buckets. I mean, like, especially you start getting into these like glacier where it's like cold storage. Like, I mean, you're talking like literal, like fractions of pennies per gigabyte. Yeah, it's like, it's nuts. I don't know about you, uh, Jeremy, but I've written down a bunch of new terms here that I'm going to have to go look up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, I, I get it somewhat. I mean, um, I was interviewing at AWS at some point, um, a couple of years ago. So I remember doing like a crash crash course on their website. So some of the stuff yeah. he's talking about, the Redshift, the AWS, S3. Um, it's it's actually like you'd pick it up really fast, Tim. It's just the acronyms. Well, it's I just get it. Terms, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's the same. It's the same thing that that uh, you, you know you went through, Bobby, with joining ConocoPhillips. Yeah. Know? What does that Greek letter fee mean? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, that's porosity. What the hell's porosity? And then you go yeah. you go through, and once you get the acronyms figured out. You know, they, of course, they get reused. About every twenty years, they change over. We've got, of course, API is used way too many places. Oh, oh don't even get me started, man. I, that that's like the worst thing. Once once I learned about REST APIs at RDS, and then we started talking about API numbers, I'm like, oh, this is going to be miserable. Oh, and <laughs> API gravity. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I was like, yeah, it says it's fifty. It's fifty API oil. Wait a minute, what does that mean? <laughs> that's pretty yeah. heavy. Right on. Anyway. Well, I think we're gonna we're gonna cut it here unless we want to jump into a Plymouth, New Hampshire story real quick. Oh, we should tell Plymouth, New Hampshire. Come Let's on. do that. Let's do that. Take yeah, you back so, home. Yeah. So my uh, my dad has been big into horses since he was a kid, um, but he grew up around uh, harness racing, you know, like quarter horses. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were living in New Hampshire at, at the time. I think at that point we were living in near Dover, his little town, Nottingham, or whatever. But yep. um, he had a couple of horses. Um, that he, he'd been training and we went to the Plymouth fair and uh, yeah. So, so spent the weekend there, you know, watching my, my dad's horses race and everything. But the one thing, I mean, it still sticks with me and I had to be like four or five, but the guy on the intercom between every horse, between everything for three days straight, the only song he would play 
was Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> so you got and a earworm? Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to, you know, it took me a, a long time before I got back and want to listen to Simon and Garfunkel again, but, um, <laughs> but, but uh, harness yeah. racing, is that the one where the guy's sitting in a, well, in, no, a buggy. in a buggy behind? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I remember, I, I think there was one time my dad took me on it with him. He didn't think about it. And then like, we got all the way around and he thought, oh, this is gonna be great. And then he looks down like my face was just covered in, in dirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah i think that fair still still goes down over at the fairgrounds grateful dead played there in the 70s oh nice a different time yeah but that's uh i can believe that but you know you got to have some some sympathy like you know things travel there a little bit slower maybe they didn't have the full roster of music that you yeah guys well like. i can tell you what they weren't ready for they weren't ready for the fine young cannibals because my dad tried to bring my little my album that i loved up and that get is. them to play that in between they wouldn't do it so no there's only <laughs> one song here kid yep <laughs> I, think, I think he even played it a little bit louder just to spite me but <laughs> put that microphone on it right on bobby nealon we appreciate you where can people find you man i know you're on linkedin you're on the twits yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, be kneeling on Twitter. Um, and I, I, you know, one thing I do need to get back to doing a little bit is, is writing some more blogs, but I yeah. you know, like a, a medium page. I did, you know, a few of those a little, usually more technical, but, um, yeah, I'm on there. It's uh, coach Nealon and, uh, you can find me on medium, but yeah, otherwise just, uh, you know, best bet is probably LinkedIn or Twitter. No, this is good. I, you crushed this and took us to school at the same time. Yeah. So no, man, I'm yeah, it was, I have it was to fun. figure out what the language rust is now. I thought oh, I yeah. knew them all, but that's, I got well, well, if you're going to start talking about, you know, uh, crypto and Bitcoin and all that stuff, like that's become kind of the big length, a big programming language for that. Cause it's, you know, I think it's memory safe, but it's super fast, like C++. So. Well, there we you go. Know, that, that's uh, and Tim, this is two episodes now we've had, we didn't talk about empower at all. I think it was just such a blur and yeah. we just moved like on with our life, but um, that was really cool. I had, I, was, a, I had a nice time. I was, it was a great, the show was great. You know, everything, everything about it was great. I mean, if, I guess uh, if we could have avoided a thunderstorm for the first half, right. first yeah, hour, but that, yeah, you know, it was gorgeous. Um, that week, the venue was great. Yeah. I do have a complaint about the parking, but. That, <laughs> oh yeah. See, I didn't have to worry about that, but it did. It took a minute to get an Uber. I love how they closed that whole area down. It's just very Texas, that brewery massive. I don't know how. Colin and Jake did it, but how do you pull Ted Cruz to come speak the closing uh, keynote? You ask, how do you pull you ask him? You ask him. I, I mean, ask Bobby to come I on. I guess you always have to just ask. But anyway, I, that that was that was impressive to see the lineup, how many people were there, Love especially it. for a first show. I mean, yeah, first absolutely. time doing it. Uh, so it, it was a great show, and I you know, I guess I'm encouraging everyone to go back. But yeah, I definitely have to make it next year. We'll do it. Anyways, Bobby Nealon, thank you, my man. No, thank you. Go Sox and uh, enjoy the Rockies game. Yep. All right. Go Sox. See ya.